A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. This game deserves national attention. Show it to these people. 254 points without a three-point shot. The pace of the game, the emotion of the game, the Boston Garden, you'll never see anything like that again, right? Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. So we're all getting first time thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 119. Thanks for joining me. Today, I'm excited to welcome back to the show, legendary Boston Globe columnist and basketball Hall of Famer, Bob Ryan. Plus, my good pal in Los Angeles, Phoenix Suns superfan, Adam Beechin. We discuss the 1976 NBA Finals, specifically the remarkable Game 5, Phoenix at Boston, June the 4th, 1976. This past weekend marked the 45th anniversary of that iconic game. Though it was the early hours of June the 5th here in Australia, for Bob and Adam, our conversation was held on the afternoon of June the 4th in the USA, 45 years ago to the day. Bob covered the game for the Boston Globe, He shares wonderful anecdotes from his vantage point at the famed Boston Garden. Adam was seven years of age and shares his recollections of those finals and how they impacted him going forwards. Me? Well, I was only 11 months and 21 days old. The first I learnt about the series was when I watched the excellent NBA Entertainment VHS, Awesome Endings, circa 1990. It was widely regarded as the greatest game ever played. Adam first appeared on the podcast back in May 2016. We released an episode titled Phoenix Rising. It's episode 71 of the show. We covered the evolution of the Phoenix Suns from the franchise's 1968-69 inception through to the 1993 NBA Finals. Today's episode is a terrific complement to that conversation. Towards the end of the episode, I'll share another great podcast review. If you can spare a moment or two, please add your review via your listening app. It'd be most appreciated. Show notes for this episode and access to a huge archive of past episodes are available at inallairness.com. Now, onto the show. As we speak, it's June the 4th of 2021, uh, 45 years to the day for both yourself, Adam and Bob, since the incredible Game 5 of the 1976 NBA Finals at Boston Garden. What memories spring to mind, Bob, from that remarkable night in NBA history when you think back on it all these years later? Probably you have to start with the back-to-back juxtaposition of the great shots. John Havlicek's, which people thought in Boston had won the game, which it turned out there were two seconds to go legitimately. The, the clock had run out illegitimately. And then Garhard's shot, 
which was the result of Paul Westfall's prescience having the wherewithal to call a timeout they did not have that earned a technical foul, but then gave them the ball at midcourt and set up Gar Hurd's shot. Collins, remember, is fouled out. So is Scott. Here come the Celtics. Clock will start when it's touched. Havlicek touches it. It begins. Three seconds. Hondo off the glass. He's got it with a second. John Havlicek won it. It's over. Two seconds to go. The Boston Celtics, but the clock should have run out. Or did it have two, right, two seconds to go in this basketball game, Brent? The ball went in with two seconds to go, and the clock has to stop on a made basket. The Phoenix Suns will get the ball. Westfall out there, pleading the Phoenix case with Powers. They're going to call a timeout now. Do they have one left, Mindy, or have they used both of them? They do not have any timeouts left. I would not be surprised now if they will call an extra timeout to gain the distance and have a technical foul assessed. get off my soapbox, but I'm going to set one thing straight right now. Over the years, the mythology has grown that Garhard's shot was a three-point shot level. That is false. That is completely and totally false. It was foul line extended. It was about 18 feet. Now, it was about 100 feet in the air. He had the most amazing <laughs> arc on his shot, but it was not a three-point shot. Westfall spinning lefty banker down the stretch. And then, of course, Glenn McDonald's one minute of fame, his Andy Warhol 60 seconds of basketball fame that won the Celtics that game. There's so many great jumping points from what you just brought up there. I read your review of the game the next day in the Boston Globe from 1976. You described Garherd's shot as a moon shot. It had that much arc on it. Adam, what springs to mind when you think of it? My memories are pretty personal. I was seven years old and my parents had split that summer. The Suns were something that brought everybody together in Phoenix. Phoenix didn't have much of a professional sports history or any sports history, really. It was a college football town and a little bit of a college baseball town. That was the year that people really became aware of the Suns. The community really turned out. Everybody watched those games together. Everybody knew all the players' names and rooted for all of them, and they belonged to us. And so I can remember sitting on the floor of my dad's apartment when Gar Heard hit that rainbow shot, and it wasn't a three-pointer. You're right. It was a, a tough shot, but it wasn't an impossible shot. Uh, and just falling flat on the carpet in, that, in my dad's apartment, just being amazed that that had actually happened. And those guys became my heroes and became the reason I, I'm such a big fan of basketball. I want to amplify talking about the history of the Suns and, 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 first of all, the unexpected nature of their appearance in the finals. They were 42 and 40. They, they played better in the second half of the year. They shocked the world by beating the defending champion Warriors in a seven-game series. Uh, and I know how excited the fandom was. You know what the nickname, Adam, of the building was? The Madhouse on McDowell Street, the Veterans Memorial Coliseum. It was a very great, vibrant atmosphere. Remember, the Southerners won those first two games handily and then came back, and the Suns won the first game, 105-98, which, as I recall, the game that started at 12 noon. Everybody was talking about the crazy starting time out there. People were worried. People weren't going to get home from church. I'm serious. And time for the game to watch it on television. But the, the killer for the Southerners was the game four, which is a two-point game. 
That's right. And I know that game six started pretty early too, back in Phoenix. The Sunday game six, yes. Yeah, there was a short turnaround between the games, but I know that game five in Boston was after everybody had gotten off of work and people were pre-gaming enthusiastically from what I understand. I want to ask you a question then, of course, you were seven, but I'm sure you've heard all the stories. (laughs) My recollection of Sunday was that everybody was wiped out emotionally. And the Phoenix fans, who had only watched the game from 2,500 miles away on television, were mentally whipped. They didn't bring it on Sunday, Adam. Yeah, you're right. Everybody was just limp with exhaustion from that fifth game. I think the only person who had any energy was Charlie Scott because he had fouled out of all the games. Oh, you're so right. (laughs) He put on a show for his old fans. You know the backstory on that? Yes. He fouled out in several games in the playoffs, including that series. Red Auerbach went to him after game five and said, Charlie, get your rest. You are going to be important on Sunday. We will need you on Sunday. Remember the famous sight of JoJo sitting on the floor exhausted? On the floor while the game was still on. And he scored 33 points. But Red Auerbach said, Charlie, Sunday has to be you. He played an amazing game, far better than anybody else on the court. I'd like to ask you, Bob, particularly about the great Paul Westfall, Hall of Famer, who sadly passed away age 70 earlier this year. Your relationship with Paul uh, was quite special. Just a little bit of backstory for our listener. Westy was drafted by Boston in 1972. He was the 10th pick overall, and he played three seasons with the Celtics. And in, in 1975, Boston traded him to Phoenix for Charlie Scott. In your excellent book, Scribe, you detail some time spent with Paul in Arizona. How would you describe your relationship with the great Paul Westfall? Well, first of all, I have always been a rule breaker with regard to the fact that the writers are supposed to be totally detached and you don't uh, and get yourself in, in personal relationships. Well, I'm a human being first, and I find a way to negotiate that circumstance. When he arrived in 1972, he was a very bright young man from the University of Southern California, engaging, witty. We hit it off. We became friends. And I, I don't deny that. There's several anecdotes along the way with, I was a friend of Paul Westfall so much. And then I did have a falling out with Tom Heinsohn. And therefore, when I went to Phoenix for games three, four, and six, I did not stay in the hotel with my colleagues. I stayed at Paul Westfall's house at 552 West Burridge Lane in Phoenix, Arizona. Do you happen to know where that is, Adam? Yes, I do. But anyway, I stayed in this house, driving to those games from Paul Westfall's house. I'll tell you one other anecdote. Because with the three-hour time difference we had, I was done writing and it was still in the middle of the afternoon and the sun was out and Paul Westfall had a pool. And so we would go to the pool and among the visitors were Alvin Adams, who lived down the street, rookie Alvin Adams, Keith Erickson, and the guy who was the 13th man on the 12-man roster, left off the playoff roster, didn't play a second. Some guy named Riley, (laughs) Pat Riley. So those are the memories I have. But I was very close to Paul Westfall. uh, But boy, he was spectacular in that series. I was so thrilled when he got in the Hall of Fame. And he was able to enjoy it. It's also worth saying that he was an incredibly nice guy. When I was a kid, I used to rebound for the Suns at the Phoenix Jewish Community Center where they practiced. And I had the good fortune to be in Springfield in 2019 when Westy was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Were you? Oh, wow. Oh, it was great fun. It was amazing for me. And to walk up to Westy and tell him that I had rebounded for him (laughs) at the JCC, he said, oh, yeah, you're the guy. Nice rebounding. And he signed a photo to me. Who, Adam, great rebounding, Paul. And uh, just to be there to watch him accept that honor was really something special for the seven-year-old in me and for me now. But of course, Adam, as you pointed out, he was traded for Charlie Scott, which was a shock of what had happened. And the idea that they would, at the end of that season, be up against each other 
in the finals was uh, unimaginable simply because the Suns were not plated to be there. The Celtics were one of the favorites always in those days, but not the Suns. Everyone assumed that the Warriors would be back defending your title. Uh, I, I can tell you that. But no one dreamed that they were going to be playing against each other in the finals. You mentioned earlier how towards the end of the second overtime, referee Richie Powers was involved <laughs> in a fight, hand-to-hand combat basically with a fan after the fans stormed the court when they thought the game had ended after the second OT. What did you see as that unfolded, Bob, with all the mayhem and, and pandemonium that was uh, happening there inside Boston Garden? Richie Powers is in a fight with a fan right here in front. Referee Richie Powers was assaulted by a fan. They pulled the four off. There are the cops out in the middle. They got fans out in the middle of the floor. The Phoenix Suns trying to get it cleared. Well, I think the word unimaginable applies at the time. The idea that a fan would come out, I can still picture it as you speak, Adam. The sight of Richie Powers rolling around on the floor with this fan, probably on the, on the emblem in midcourt. And the security was horrible. And the Suns were livid about this. And, and, and to this day, if you talk to Jerry Colangelo, I promise you, won't go more than 30 seconds before he brings up the lack of security at the Boston Garden. They were really upset about it. I know that. The fans did storm the court. They thought the game was over, but they had to be taken off. And the Celtics had gone to the locker room. They thought it was over. Well, there were two seconds to go. And there should have been two seconds to go. They let the clock run out. So, yes, Richie Powers being attacked was, was shocking and, and obviously indefensible. Unbelievable. Just researching for the chat today, Bob, I read your Next Day article in the Boston Globe. And if you'll indulge me just for a moment, it begins, what do you say after you've seen the greatest game of professional basketball ever played? Since that time, has any game changed your mind on where this game ranks? I'm sure there have been several, including some I would not privilege to be, to, to attend. And one of them might have involved the Suns, a, a multi-overtime game against the Bulls back in 93. There haven't been too many that have challenged it for the, the scope of everything that happened and, and the background to it, the, the improbability of the Suns being the the team that would push the Celtics to this extent is part of the story for sure. But when you think about, we talked about the Havlicek shot, which by the way, I think I also described in terms of Nolan Ryan's fastball off the glass. I think something like that. It was right in front of me. And that shot couldn't have been shot harder off the glass. I don't know how it still didn't shatter the glass, but it did go in. The Hurd shot, Westfall's shot, Curtis Curry's shot. That's another big shot that, that uh, was a very important one including the fact that the Celtics, and I, I maintain this to this day, the best basketball that they played in the entire 1976 playoffs was the first 14 minutes of that game. They were out by 18 at the quarter, and I, I think I expanded the lead to 22. And the Suns just, okay, you're done now. Uh, and they came back, all the way back, obviously, to push into overtimes. Uh, plus, they were down nine points with, what, three and change, and Westfall led them back with uh, one amazing spinning banker, which everybody remembers. They were resilient. They had two players that were very, very intriguing. They had two rookies who weren't rookies. They weren't mentally, spiritually rookies. Alvin Adams and Ricky Sobers. And they were, they were well mature beyond their years, the players. Let me tell you a quick Alvin Adams thing. In the training camp that year, I was on the phone with Westfall, my friend. And he said to me, and I remember this quote, Adams, plural. I remember this quote to, to this day, verbatim. Bob, we have here a young man who can play basketball, unquote. And he was talking about Alvin Adams and, and then proceeded to tell me about the virtues of Alvin Adams. He was a precocious player, if ever there was one. He was unflappable, unemotional, unfazed, poised, mature, professional from the day he walked on the court. Adam, you're a Phoenix native. Anything you'd like to add there? 
I think that when Alvin was drafted, if I'm not mistaken, there were uh, some mixed reactions from the fans because nobody had heard of him. He played at Oklahoma. He played in the Big Eight. It was not a, a power conference in those days, and Oklahoma wasn't a big program. John McLeod had come from there, the Suns coach, and he had recruited Alvin, but not coached him there. So people didn't really know what they were getting with Alvin Adams. And Alvin's shot up the summer league that year, and people had a, an idea that he and Westfall had some really good chemistry. And by the time they got to the playoffs, Adams was really well-seasoned. He had seen everybody in the league. And I think he was maybe the one guy who could run with Dave Cowan and take Cowan's outside and away from the basket and shoot jump shots. And so he was really a perfect matchup to have in that series against Boston. He was amazing. But the best thing about Alvin, as far as I'm concerned, and I think you can find this on YouTube, is that when he accepted the award for Rookie of the Year, the first person he thanked was David Thompson for going to the ABA. I'd like to thank Coach McLeod for uh, displaying all the confidence he has in me, first at University of Oklahoma, and now here, and, and Coach Bianchi also, and especially to my teammates who help me look uh, good sometimes, and, uh, and, and last, uh, to David Thompson for going to the ABA. <laughs> I'll tell you an Alvin Adams story, as told by Keith Erickson. In 2001, the Boston Globe commissioned myself and my colleague Peter May to do a 25th anniversary retrospective on the game. We were given a month and a half. We tracked down every living participant, okay, which included the trainers, Joe Plosky in Phoenix, which included, of course, Al Bianchi. We have to tell the Al Bianchi story. You know about the ring, right, Adam? We have to tell it. Please. Okay. And the two referees had passed, Don Murphy and, and, and Richie by that time. But anyway, we tracked everybody down. I went out to Phoenix. I had dinner with Bianchi. I went to McLeod's house. Of course, I, I went to Alvin, who was running the building then, remember? And we got them all, and, and Peter got them all. Okay. One of the things that Erickson told me about the young Alvin Adams, the first trip the team made to New York, they're riding on the bus, and Alvin looks out of all the tall skyscrapers, the kid from Midwest City, Oklahoma, which I'm sure is a prosperous suburb, right, of Oklahoma City. He's not a country kid, but they've been sheltered to a degree. He's looking at the tall buildings, and he goes, Golly! That's it. That's Derrickson's story. Alvin Adams said, golly, where am I? So there you go. It's just tremendous. I'm I'm really glad that you mentioned that feature, Bob. It ran over two days. Yeah. The first day was called Stand Up Triple. And then the following day on the Monday edition, it was very cleverly titled View from Bird's Eyes. So as I understand it, you also met with Larry Bird as he watched the game for the first time in his home theater, I think in Naples, Florida. How was that experience watching Larry Legend watching this game for the first time? Number one, it was so much fun. He actually had a little home theater, including a popcorn machine, <laughs> and, and, and not to mention a cooler. And we sat in his theater chairs. I brought the cassette of the game. He had never seen it. He was fascinated. He was enthralled. He loved so many aspects of it. Number one thing he loved was the pace, the fast breaking, the, the, the relentless fast breaking of both teams. He loved that. He loved some of the individual players. He said, is Silas really this good? I said, better than you think. He had known of Silas, but didn't know how good Paul Silas was. Oh, yeah, that was good. That was a fun story to write. I can tell you that. That was a great uh, moment for me. I, I'm glad you, you got to see that. Yeah, it's fantastic to see the the piece. And I've got access to newspapers.com, so it's a paid subscription. But if anyone does have access to see the article, absolutely sensational. Just one thing I wanted to ask, particularly, Bob, Game 5 was tip-off at 9 p.m. 
It was the longest finals game in NBA history to that point. Given it finished past midnight, I think the official game time was three hours and eight minutes. Do you recall how much pressure you were under to submit your game report before the (laughs) deadline for the Boston Globe? In those days, yeah, we had three editions. Obviously, the first two editions were what we call running. I would be, be at the halftime, I would submit something, and then you would have at the end of the third quarter a couple of paragraphs, and then you'd have what we call the lead. You top it off with the lead. That was going to have to carry you through the first two. So for the final, we people call right through. The deadline was probably two o'clock. So basically, I probably had forty-five minutes by the time I worked the locker rooms to write that story. No more than that, but I was used to that. That's the life that we led in those days, and so no, there's no issue. But I did, and I was proud of what I did. And you're right, exactly. The game ended at 12.08, and I remember that specifically. It started at 9. It was on CBS. That was the reason it started at 9, because television, even then, 45 years ago, television dictated everything you know, as it does today. But you're right. and But it was a challenge. But I was, you can imagine not being invigorated. Now, you have to meet the challenge as a writer, but I was, I was pumped. There's no question. Absolutely. Bob, I'd love to know where you were sitting for that game. Oh, at the court side, home game, I would have been somewhere between two or three seats to the left of the bench. So okay. at home, we sat there on the road during the regular season. The playoffs are different. I used to want to sit near the visiting bench because I wanted to feel that and in here. See, part of the reason the thing you had in those days is not just that you could see the game better from the court. You could hear it and there were things to hear. Whether it was a, maybe a little byplay with referee, maybe. But anyway, just the feel of, the, of, of that huddle. Watching the game over the last couple of days, I was impressed to see that with each quarter, the fans got closer and closer <laughs> and closer to the court. At one point, did you have fans all around you? And what was their emotional state? And I know it was really hot in the garden that night, too. It was hot because the Boston Garden never had air conditioning. It closed in 1995 and never had an air conditioning. So it was hot. It was June and it was hot. Uh, not as hot as the famous heat game in 1984 against the uh, Lakers when it was 97 degrees Fahrenheit inside at tip-off time, but it was hot. It's funny, I don't remember specifically being worried too much about being you know, overwhelmed that night, but there was one night in 1974, two years earlier, game six against the Bucks. I was worried they were coming. I remember gathering up my typewriter and punching down. They're coming over the top. They're coming over the press table. And then Kareem Abdul-Jabbar hit that hook from the 17th feet on the right-hand baseline to win the game for the Bucks, and they weren't coming any longer. That's a night I remember more being afraid of the crowd. But the crowd was a factor, as we talked about the Richie Powers thing. And, and they were bothering the Suns at their bench. Suns had every right to be angry. They had every right. I don't begrudge them uh, that at all. There was an interesting moment towards the end of the regulation time where Paul Silas was actually gesturing to call a timeout. I know Adam's already <laughs> already <laughs> livid at this. Do you want to maybe even take it over from here, Adam? There was a, a possibly missed timeout that Richie Powers chose to ignore based on what he was uh, saying in future years. I'm not sure I can retell the story without swearing a lot, <laughs> but, but Silas grabs a rebound at the end of regulation, turns to Richie Powers and signals for a timeout, and Powers is looking right at him and decides not to call the timeout because he didn't want the game to end that way. And it's something that stuck with Al Bianchi. We mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier. After the series, he had a commemorative championship ring made up, and on the inside it was inscribed, bleep you, Richie Powers. And he wore that for decades. I understand that he lost it. He left it in a bathroom somewhere, which is also an ideal punchline to the whole story. But that is the great missing piece of Phoenix Suns memorabilia. And if anybody can get their hands on that, boy, what a treasure. You're 100% correct in every aspect. And I'll add one little detail that Al told me that story in full during my research for this story in 2001. 
he said the kicker he had was that some guy thinks he's got something valuable. It costs $65. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Adam, did you get to know, did you know Al at all? No, I really wish I had met him because I imagine he had stories from playing all the way through coaching Dr. J to being with the Suns for so many years. One of my favorite people I ever encountered in, in all the years I covered the league. He was honest, didn't know how to tell a lie. He was maybe the biggest Celtic hater ever. He hated all things Celtic. Like if he saw this on me today, oh my God, he'd, he'd be out of his mind. And this is not a Celtic shirt. It's to be. Anyway, Al Bianchi, tough player. He was, a, he was a journeyman guard on a bowling green, had a long NBA career, including playing for the 1967-76ers. Uh, he was a backup guard, got a ring. Uh, tough guy. Right. He was very loyal to the ABA, coached the Virginia Squires, which meant he had Charlie Scott and, and Dr. J before, you know, went to the Nets. He truly hated the Celtics. And do you remember when they had at the All-Star game, used to have those old-timers games? Yeah, the Legends games. Well, he was coaching one of them. And Dave Cowens, we've got to talk about him. Dave Cowens was playing for, for one team. And he pushed off to get a rebound that, and got a big basket in this game. And after the game, Bianchi was really, nothing ever changes. He said, nothing ever changes. The Celtics get away with everything. You know, he, 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 I'm sure his last words were, bleep you, Richie Powers. I'll be willing to bet that. I think you're probably right. He and McLeod were, were characters. They were such opposites in temperament. Oh, John was a preacher's son. Very genteel and very well-dressed all the time. Totally. He was a very prim and proper guy. He was a gentleman. And it's not necessarily a gentleman's game. Al was not a gentleman. Al was a dock worker type, if you will. Some great stories there. Thank you for sharing them. And thank you, Adam, for sharing your memories as well of what you remember growing up as a diehard Phoenix super fan. Earlier in the chat, you mentioned Glenn McDonald. Now, in your 1976 recap of Game 5 in the Globe, you referenced another improbable Celtics hero. His nickname was Big Gene. Uh, Gene, I'm not sure how you pronounce his surname. He was a four-time champion back in the... Early 60s. Do you recall? Oh, Gene Gorilla. Gene Gorilla. Guarded Elgin Baylor for a significant portion of a, of a key game and held him in check. You referenced him as an improbable Celtics hero, and I had to go back to basketball reference. He's a four-time champion with the Celtics from 1960 to 1963, I believe. And there was one more time. Darren Day had a, a tip in to beat the Bucks in, in, in 87, and that was another one. Glenn McDonald was shocked to get into the game. He was surprised. Paul Silas fouled out. Cowens had fouled out, Silas fouled out, Adams fouled out for them, Dennis Autry fouled out for them. We were getting down to them. they needed the battle of attrition. And when Silas fouled out, McDonald says he thought that obviously Steve Kaberski would be the sub. No, he said, Glenn, get in there. And in the space of one minute, he had six points, including one very difficult baseline turnaround and missed a layup that he should have made and committed the turnover all in the space of like 65 seconds. But those six points were vital points at that time. He came into the third overtime with fresh legs. We were talking earlier about how JoJo was so exhausted. He wound up sitting on the floor during a free throw. But Glenn McDonald will always be remembered. He never did anything remotely comparable to that in his, in his very relatively brief Celtic career. I got to throw one other name of an auxiliary contributor that was without Jim Ard. Jim Ard made two big free throws that put the Celtics up by uh, six because the, the Suns scored more points, and, and, and Westfall almost stole the ball with the, giving them a last chance to win the game. But Jim Ard, and somebody was giving him the choke sign, and Jim Ard said, yeah, well, here you go, and he made the two big free throws. He was another wonderful guy, good backup center. It's 128-122. Six points, 29 seconds. I think Phoenix is about run out of miracles, and just when I say that, 
Somebody throws up an unbelievable shot. Paul Westfall with an incredible shot. That's 23 points for Paul Westfall. Clock down to 21 seconds. It's a four-point lead, and McDonough lost it. 17 seconds. Silvers has got Westfall open. It's two points again at 12 seconds. Here is Glenn McDonald. Two-point basketball game. Nelson gives it to Ard. Westfall's got a hand on it. Ard goes back. Five seconds. Right. Four. Three. Two. One. It's going to be all over. And look at the fans here in the Boston Garden. They battled three overtimes. And finally it's over. But would you believe the end of that third overtime? I just had a look at the box scores last night, and I've uh, got them in front of me here. Glenn McDonald had eight points on three of five from the field. He hit two clutch free throws uh, in 13 minutes of game time. So you contrast that with Jojo White, who played 60 minutes, 33 points, 15 of 29 from the field. He had six rebounds and nine assists, so no wonder he was uh, seated in the backcourt. He was the MVP in the series, officially. I got to quickly tell you about Cowens. I was speaking to Cowens two days ago. I told him I was working on stuff on this. Uh, I've been doing something about the game. And he said, well, don't mention that I fouled out. I said, yeah, you fouled out, but that's not the best part. Four different sons blocked one of your shots. <laughs> he didn't believe me, but I'm telling you. And I said, I know Alvin did. I think Autry. And he went, Autry could never block one of my shots. I said, well, maybe from behind. But it's true, Adam. Four different guys. I have to go look it up. Dave couldn't believe it, but it's true. I was in uh, Chicago with my wife, Lisa, in early 2020 and we were at a all-star breakfast which he attended and I saw him from a distance and it took every ounce of my being not to go up and fawn over him and say hello and say what a big fan I was of him retrospectively looking at his career how was he these days Bob he's excellent he lives in Raymond Maine which is 15 miles northwest of Portland on a lake in a beautiful little spot he's terrific and and I, I I'm in good contact with him and I've been friendly with him since the day he walked in in 1970 it is always available to me. Let me put it that way. We're friendly. And I always tell people it was my favorite guy I ever covered. I never covered a player that was a better combination of, of skill and, and personality and intellectual curiosity. Fascinating guy. Yeah. Terrific to hear. Uh, Adam, is there anything you'd like to add to Bob or about the conversation here before we start to put a bow on things? Uh, no, this has just been a dream come true to talk to somebody who was actually there, let alone a writer who was actually there, who uh, knows so much about the game and knows so much about that series that was so important to me growing up and remains important to me. I have a framed jersey of Phil Lumpkin on my wall. That's how, how deep I go with wow. 75, 76, huh? That's going deep. Yeah. You got Nate Hawthorne, you really got my attention. But the late, great Phil Lumpkin is, is a piece of him is on my wall, a piece of his, uh, his basketball Social series for us, too. Jerry Colangelo was a very hospitable host to media. It was a great, fun time in Phoenix. He really was. I've been made friendly to Jerry to this day. I saw him at Springfield just two weeks ago at the, at the Hall of Fame in, in Connecticut. I was also present at the first Diamondbacks game. Wow. I was his invited guest. How about that? <laughs> wow. You've seen a lot of growth in Phoenix, though. Yeah. Years. Anyway, Adam, it stands the test of time for me, that game. This game deserves national attention. Show it to these people. 254 points without a three-point shot. The pace of the game, the emotion of the game, the Boston Garden, you'll never see anything like that again, right? The way it was, I think people would really enjoy it. I really do. Somebody ought to consider NBA Network to really ballyhoo that game. Oh, absolutely. Hopefully, when the 50th anniversary comes around, they do make a big uh, song and dance about it. Thank you, Bob, so much for making yourself available to talk about this momentous game. It's been a real treat to have you on again. 
This has been great. And thank you, Bob. And thank you for all your work with the NBA over the years. You've given me so many great things to read that has really fired my imagination about the game and made me want to be a fan for decades to come. I would like to point out that the Suns are one and one in triple overtime finals games. Uh, so they did even their record 17 years later against the Bulls and no team has has approached that number of triple overtime games. What is the level of excitement on a scale of 10 right now on your son's? I think it's really high. I think though that 11 years of not being in the playoffs has led to a lot of late coming interest in the Suns. I think there are a lot of bandwagon fans there and they're more than welcome. Suns need every bit of support they can get. But I think old time Suns fans are very excited because this is a team that was built through the draft and the players really feel like they belong to the community. That's good. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Thanks again, Bob, for your time. It's been fantastic. It's been a real treat to have you on. Thank you, Adam, for revealing yourself as well. Awesome to catch up with you again. And hopefully we may have a chance to reconnect again and maybe do a three-man weave about some other topic in NBA history. All right. I'm all for it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Adam. Thank you. Nice meeting you, Bob. Same here, Adam. Take care. Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. You can suggest topics or guests you want to hear conversations with. Send me an email. Audio clips are welcome in all airness, at gmail.com. Time now to share another great review from a fan of the show. Thanks to Bui Hohang via Apple Podcasts Australia. It's titled, Without Doubt, The Best NBA History Podcast, and it's rated five stars. Thank you very much. And it reads, Do you love basketball? Yes. Do you want more info on 80s and 90s ball? Yes. Then be like Leitner and get involved with In All Airness. The best historical basketball podcast in the flipping universe. I think that's how it's meant to be read. It was all capitalized. Thank you, Adam. P.S. The Instagram posts on In All Airness have been straight fire. Well, thank you very much, Bui Hohang, and I'm confident that's not your real name. I believe your real name is John. So thank you, John. And yes, I do love to share some great clips on my Instagram account, particularly. Worldwide, the show has 179 ratings on Apple Podcasts with an average of four and a half stars, with 94 reviews across all providers. Thanks for your continued support. If you had a review, I'd love to read it out on a future episode. Your ratings and reviews are one of the best ways to support the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please tell your basketball-loving friends about it. Your word-of-mouth recommendations are truly worth their weight in gold. Stay up to date with my podcast and subscribe to my free email newsletter. You'll receive exclusive details on upcoming podcast episodes future guests to appear on the show, and more. Simply email me, inallairness at gmail.com. You can follow my show in various ways. Search for In All Airness, three words, on your podcast app of choice. The show is readily available on most listening platforms. Check the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with a great range of guests. Follow me on social media. My handle on Instagram and Twitter is at inallairness. Search in all airness on Facebook and YouTube too. Join me next time for another edition of the show.